Amen. You're, you're talking about, uh, Mike was talking about misbehaving when he was a, a child, and I, I'm thankful my parents all, always forgave me too, but they also spanked me, and then they forgave me. So, and so, and so, <laughs> so, so uh, you know, you, you think uh, certainly the Lord loves his children, and we talked about Wednesday night how uh, the Lord never punishes believers, but he certainly disciplines us, and you know, when we... Uh, disobey or, or not walking in the spirit and walking after the flesh, sometimes the Lord allows that discipline to come our way as a loving father to help mold and shape us into uh, the children he wants us to be. So, But we never have to worry about uh, being under his wrath or being uh, you know, displaced as his children because we are part of the family of God. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15 this morning as we continue our journey uh, through uh, the early days of the church, um, and uh, we're now on the downhill side, at least of the historical record that Luke gives us in the book of Acts. We finished up the first 14 chapters last week, and now we start uh, with chapter 15. You know, we live in a, a very fractured world these days, and even if you didn't see the, dis, the disunity and the conflict and the fighting and the strife all around us, uh, we're constantly reminded by the mainstream media that we are a divided nation. Very little unity. It's more of a, uh, of a stew pot of differing ideas than it is a melting pot that our country uh, once uh, was. It seems like, in many ways, things are spiraling out of control. And I've speculated elsewhere that, you know, perhaps this is all part of the, the plan of the Luciferian elites that are really fomenting this disunity to try to bring down America so they can usher in this one world system of religious and political and economic control. But whatever the reason, there can be no doubt that there are issues. And those issues have sadly made their way into the church. And so today a lot of churches are fighting and, and uh, some are fighting over important issues. Some are fighting over incidental issues. Uh, I think I've mentioned before some of the conflicts that we've experienced in going on 35 years of ministry, uh, you know, are, are just laughable. Someday I hope to write a book uh, detailing some of those uh, stories about, you know, crunchy communion bread or which way the refrigerator door opens or, you know, things like that. Real important spiritual doctrinal truths that people take a stand on and end up splitting churches, you know. But uh, the early church, as we're going to see today, had its share of issues uh, as well. It's the year is 50 AD, so the church is 17 years old by the time you get to Acts chapter 15. A church, of course, founded in 33 AD, and so here we are in 50 AD. Paul and Barnabas have returned from their missionary journey that we spent a few weeks talking about as they embarked from Syria, just north of Israel there, uh, in the city of Antioch and headed to points west, starting out in the island of Cyprus and then heading up to the region of southern Galatia. Well, now they're back, and no sooner did they get back than they uh, heard reports of uh, conflict and disunity in the newfound churches that they had just planted as they had shared the gospel and people had come to faith in cities like Lystra and Iconium and Derby and others, uh, uh, Pisidian Antioch and other little cities. And the issue was over what precisely someone has to do to really be saved. Remember, Paul had made it clear, as God's Word says from cover to cover, that salvation is by grace through faith, it's not of works. 
Nothing you can do to commend yourself to a holy God. It's totally by the free gift of God's grace. And we receive that gift by faith. And he preached, as we saw in Acts 13 and 14, the simple gospel message. And people had received it, believed it, and been born again. And yet, some false teachers had crept in after Paul left the region and begun to tell these new believers that, well, if you really want to go to heaven, you got to keep the law, or you got to be circumcised, or you got to follow the Jewish code. And so, uh, Paul gets back to Antioch. He gives a report that we read about last week to the church. And then he, uh, you know, gets a text or an email or somehow read it on Facebook that there was all this disunity in these other uh, churches. And so he uh, and Barnabas set out to go to Jerusalem to meet with the early church leaders there, uh, James and the others, and talk about this, these conflicts. Now, of course, this was, in, as I said, in the early days of the church. It was before the totality of God's self-revelation to mankind was complete. It was the apostolic age when God was still revealing more about his truth through the pen of people like Paul. In fact, uh, it was about this time. In fact, I believe it was during his journey from Antioch to Jerusalem for this meeting that I just mentioned. I believe it was on that trip that Paul penned the words of his first epistle, uh, that we have in the Bible, the book of Galatians, Paul's earliest of the 13 letters that we know he wrote in Scripture. Um, but so, so the way they dealt with their conflicts was a little bit different than we do today in the church because they didn't have the full counsel of God in his word. But they went to the apostles, those men who had been marked out by God to speak with revelatory authority and make uh, decisions about some of these matters. So we call this meeting in Acts, uh, that, that Luke records in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. And it was a way for the early church to kind of settle disputes and to solve problems, but it was also a way for them to discover, as we're going to see in this passage today, what they had in common. And what I want us to see this morning is that after 2,000 years, not a lot has changed. We still have our differences, but we still have a lot in common. There are things that are unique to us as brothers and sisters in Christ that brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the entire world share. And we, I think, have lost sight of some of those blessings. So what do we have in common? Let me read the first uh, seven or so verses, and then we'll pick it up on the screen with, uh, with, at the end of verse 7. So Acts chapter 15, verse 1, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we want to encourage you, we've got free Bibles out on the table in the lobby, feel free to take one as our gift to you. I encourage you to bring your Bibles to a Plum Creek Chapel when you come. I know these days a lot of people have Bible on a mobile app or a mobile device, that's fine, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, back in the day it started out on rocks and then scrolls and then sheepskins and then papyrus, and today it's in, you know, digital screen, I guess, I'm not sure that's that great physiologically but anyway it is what it is so whatever tool you use to read the bible we encourage you to bring your bibles uh, with you to church so beginning in verse one and the certain men came down from judea and taught the brethren unless you are circumcised according to the custom of moses you cannot be saved therefore when paul and barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them wait you mean in the early church there were dissensions and disputes yeah Absolutely. For 2,000 years, the church has had these types of disputes. Now, the depravity of man is degenerative, and so after over 2,000 years, it's gotten worse and worse. Paul tells us 
that's going to be the case in 2 Timothy 3.13. But right out of the shoot, and we saw this earlier. We saw in chapter 6, the church, very early days of the church, they were having disagreements. As long as the church is made up of human beings that have a fallen nature, they're going to be disputes. In fact, uh, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because then it won't be perfect anymore, right? Um, so no small dissension and dispute uh, with these false teachers. Then they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, a couple, one thing I just want to point out real quick in verse 2 there, notice it says, they determined. One of my passions in terms of understanding ecclesiology of the local church is the fact that the local church as a whole works together. There's not one, you know, dictator that's in charge. Obviously, in the early church, there were apostles and elders. I've already talked about that because of that was the nature of that transitional age. But today, I don't believe in, in, in a one dictator kind of dictating to the dumb sheeple that don't know anything. We are all the body of Christ. We're all valuable in his sight. And here at Plum Creek Chapel, we have an elder team and a leadership team aboard. But we, we, we consider ourselves servant leaders who are here to work with you and understand and learn more about uh, what God is doing in our midst, not just dictate and lord it over you. It's the kind of leadership Jesus expressed to the disciples. But in any event, notice that Paul and Barnabas just didn't up and announce, hey, we're headed out. It says uh, they determined, the church body said, hey, why don't you guys go represent us and seek some counsel from the leaders in Jerusalem. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So as they're going to Jerusalem, they're telling people about the incredible evangelistic harvest that they had just had from that first missionary journey, and it brought great joy to the brethren. It reminded me of uh, Jesus' teaching in Luke 15 about the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son, and it said there's joy in heaven when one sinner repents, when one lost person changes their mind and recognizes that only Jesus Christ can save them. And there should be. We should rejoice when people come to faith. Verse 4, when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, so let's just stop there. How many of you recognize that every one of us in this room, when we believe the gospel and become born again, part of the family of God, we bring baggage with us, right? So Plum Creek Chapel uh, has become over 20 years of ministry, a essentially a multi-denominational local church. You know, we're not Baptist, we're not Bible church, we're not Presbyterian, we're not charismatic, we're not any one thing. We're just an independent Bible teaching church that believes the Bible is everything we need for life and godliness. And so people are drawn to this church for a variety of reasons, but we all come from backgrounds. And so we have different understandings and ways of doing things culturally, right, in the church. Uh, I've talked before about how some people like to take the Lord's Supper every week. That was their upbringing. Some people do it every month. Some people do it every quarter, you know. It, that's, the Bible doesn't tell us how often to do it, but you know, you bring these backgrounds with you, and sometimes it's kind of hard to to let go of them. That's the reason uh, that you know Martin Luther and and some of the other reformers, when they broke away from the Roman Church in what we call the Protestant Reformation, they still carried with them some baggage that made its way into Calvinistic 
theology today, according to which you know works still have to be present to prove you're really saved. And if you're not doing good works, you're not a Christian, as if somehow works are the issue. It's not the issue. It's, it's grace and faith. But anyway, these were Pharisees who had gotten saved. They had believed, verse 5. And these believers rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, these dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles. You know, how dare they hone in on our church, you know. Uh, that's fine, we'll let them in, but they got to keep the law. You know, that was their understanding because they had been so ingrained with the law. It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, and this is where I want to begin uh, our look at uh, some of the things that we have in common. Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by the mouth of the Gentile, that among us that by the mouth, by my mouth, the Gentile should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So a good while ago, that's 17 years ago. Remember, church began on the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. So the first thing we need to remember that we have in common is we have the same gospel. Do you understand that for 2,000 years roughly, the church has preached the same gospel, well, or should have, right? Uh, you know, Paul's first letter that I referenced a moment ago in Galatians, he was already addressing false gospels that these Judaizers, these legalists were uh, trying to teach. But the gospel hasn't changed, even though Satan, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, is blinding men's hearts to the gospel and distorting the gospel and twisting the gospel, and as Paul says in Galatians 1, perverting the gospel, the gospel hasn't changed. And the gospel was the issue in the early church. The gospel was their rallying cry. It was the centerpiece of all that was done. They had understood that, that God sent His Son to the earth to pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. He shed His blood on their behalf, and all they had to do was trust in Him and Him alone as the only one with the authority to forgive sin and give life, and they could be saved. As you've heard me say, many times, uh, a lot more than 160 times, 160 times the Bible tells us in the New Testament that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Eternal life is conditioned only upon faith, and that's good news. You're a sinner on the road to hell, but I have the solution. I have the good news. The singular focus or goal, as Paul and Barnabas traveled from city to city, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, was to tell the good news. Uh, the gospel, because the only way to have eternal life and become part of the family of God is to believe the gospel. You've got to hear and believe the gospel. Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by uh, the word of God. Three years later, according to Luke in the book of Acts, uh, Paul was in Ephesus, and we read these words in Acts chapter 20. None of these things move me. Paul is now speaking to the elders that he has gathered together. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, which is what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. By this time, Paul has had uh, you know, incredible uh, trials and tribulations. We've, he's already had some. We read about those on this last missionary journey. But for Paul and the early church, the gospel is what it was all about. Nothing else mattered. He would later write, to the Romans after his third missionary journey, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 
This would be in 56 A.D. As he's, as he's wrapping up his third missionary journey, or in the midst of that third journey. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, um, Jews and Gentiles alike. In Ephesians chapter 6, one of uh, Paul's prison epistles, 10 years later now, so now we're in 60 AD, 10 years after where we are in our flow of thought in the book of Acts, and uh, even while in prison, Paul is still proclaiming the gospel. It's what binds us together. He says, pray for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. I mean, when's the last time when you were facing a trial? Uh, fortunately, at least so far in our country, we haven't been imprisoned for sharing the gospel, although there have been some. Remember back during the pandemic, those... Uh, terrible Christians up in Idaho that were singing praises to God out in the open air were hauled off and arrested and taken to jail. But other than a few exceptions, by and large, we don't have to go to prison for sharing the gospel. But we've all faced different struggles and trials of life. And when's the last time in the midst of a trial you prayed, Lord, help me to share the gospel right now? I don't know about you, but my prayers usually go, Lord, help me to survive this. Lord, relieve the pain. Lord, fix the problem. Lord, rescue me from this issue. But here's Paul saying, Help me to preach the gospel, right? See, that's what we have in common. We all have the same good news. And it's the same good news that the church has proclaimed, or should have been proclaiming at least, for 2,000 years. That Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And anyone who believes that, on the authority of Scripture, passes from death to life instantly and is born again. That's what Jesus said. So we have the same gospel in common. We all share this amazing message, this amazing good news. It's news that affects all of us the same way. We're all in the same muck and miry pit of sin, facing the penalty of sin, and we all need to be rescued. So the gospel is the great equalizer, right? Uh, you know, I think the problem that those Pharisees had that we just read about is, even though they had believed the gospel, they still were prideful and still thought that somehow they could do something to, to impress a holy God. And, and their dotting of I's and crossing of T's made them somehow more acceptable. And they didn't realize that they were no different than the worst of sinners. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Have you ever walked into a room and, and heard people kind of huddled across the room uh, talking about something and you couldn't quite hear what they were saying, you didn't know what they were talking about, but they all seemed very happy and very overjoyed and and very excited. And so you ask, what's all the excitement? What are you so happy about? You know, and, and you just, you feel like you're missing out on something. Well, with the gospel, we're all part of that conversation. We never have to walk into a room and feel like somehow we're an outsider. As members of the body of Christ, we all have the same gospel. And that means we also have the same guarantee. We have the same guarantee. If you look at the next verse, Paul goes on, again, still speaking at this Jerusalem council. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So Paul is essentially making a comparison between what happened on the day of Pentecost when the church was born and the Holy Spirit came upon everyone, to what happened to Gentiles. Remember, the, in the day of Pentecost, it was a in Jerusalem, it was, it was the Jews in Jerusalem that were saved first. But as it spread westward and the gospel went to Gentiles, first with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and now to all of these other cities, 
the Holy Spirit was given to them uh, as well. Later, Paul would write uh, that God has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It says the same thing in Ephesians. Having believed, that's the only way you ever get saved, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit, we talked about Him in the first uh, session with some of the uh, questions and as we were talking about heaven. But the Holy Spirit is the common bond that ties us all together. In the Old Testament, believers you know, had their commonality centered around the law and the, the sacrificial system and the festivals and those types of things. That's where they came together. That was what they had in common. But in the present age, God has removed the dividing wall of separation. He's opened up a new and living way for us through the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And we now have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which no one before on earth ever experienced. So the Holy Spirit would come upon people and he would leave. That's why David, after his sin with Bathsheba, if you remember in the famous penitent psalm, Psalm 51, he prayed, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You never find that prayer in the New Testament because the Bible is very clear that the Holy Spirit is our, you know, our guarantee until the day of redemption. We never have to worry about it. He's with us always. He's our seal guaranteeing the day of redemption. And that is the common bond that binds us together. In 1 Corinthians uh, 12, Paul says in that famous section 12 to 14 where he's talking about the local body and the gifts within the body and working together. He says, For as the body is one and as many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. He goes on, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. See, it's the Holy Spirit that forms the body of Christ. There's a lot of misunderstanding out there about what the Bible teaches regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But remember, just a quick little primer on baptism. Baptism just means identification. And baptism as a cultural religious rite predates Christianity by thousands of years. It was used in the ancient Near East by pagan religions. Baptism just is a way of identifying with some message or person. For example, in the Old Testament, you see Moses' baptism, and you see proselyte baptism. You come to the first century, you see John the Baptist's baptism, which was not the same as Christian baptism. Then you see Jesus himself was baptized. And then you see the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That just means the Holy Spirit is identifying us with Christ. We are now one with him in his body. We are, have formed the body of Christ. And then after that, on the day of Pentecost, you see Christian baptism, for example, in Acts chapter 10, uh, when Cornelius and his family, after believing the gospel, were commanded to be baptized. And what does water baptism of believers identify us with? Not Christ. That's Holy Spirit baptism identifies us with Christ. Water baptism identifies us with other believers. It's a way of saying, I've trusted Christ. I'm one of you. I'm now part of the family. Water baptism is not necessary for salvation by any means. It's a Although some religions and, and Christian denominations teach that falsely. But Paul made it clear, I think it's in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, uh, don't quote me on that, but it's in 1 Corinthians, that God did not send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Well, if water baptism was necessary to get into heaven, why didn't God teach, to tell Paul to baptize? Because it's not necessary. We're only saved by grace through faith. Water baptism is just an uh, outward expression of an inward experience. It's something that takes place after you've been born again by faith, and it identifies you 
with other believers. But spirit baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, identifies us with Christ. And it happens at the moment we place our faith in Christ. Every believer has already been baptized into the body of Christ. It's not a second blessing or something that you have to hope for, strive for, or get later. It happens at the moment of faith. And it constitutes a guarantee that we will spend eternity in heaven with our Lord and other believers that have gone before us. So what do we have in common? We have the same gospel. We have the same guarantee. And we're also all beneficiaries of the same grace. Now this ought to really excite us, but as Paul is continuing his uh, message and his uh, testimony, if you will, before the council, we read in verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. One grace. <laughs> so uh, we're all saved by grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. Undeserved blessing. And what can be more undeserved than the forgiveness of sins and eternal life? See, we all deserve the penalty of sin. That's clear enough in Scripture. The wages of sin is death. Paul told, or God told uh, Adam and Eve, In the day thou eatest thereof, you shall surely die. I mean, the, the rules were plainly stated. We chose to rebel against a holy God. We brought the circumstances on ourselves. But it's God's grace, undeserved, that causes him to offer to all the free gift of eternal life. Um, and so we all have the same grace. And this is crucial because it means that we're all on equal footing. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We're not better than anybody else. We all, you know, need grace. We all needed grace for justification, to be declared righteous before a holy God, to be saved, as we commonly call it. And guess what? We all need grace day by day. No one can claim to be in a higher echelon or more elite or more deserving. If you deserve grace, it's not grace. You know, um, you know People sometimes say, I'm, I'm too bad to be saved. I don't deserve God's grace. Bingo. <laughs> as soon as you come to that realization, that's when God's grace can step in. When it's nothing in my hand, I bring simply to the cross I cling. And throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, you see in the gospel accounts this juxtaposition between the prideful, self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes who thought they needed no repentance. They didn't think they needed a change of mind. They thought they were fine as they are versus the dirty, rotten tax collectors, harlots, and others who come humbly saying, I'm not worthy. And it's only when we say, I'm not worthy, that we can then achieve by simple faith, the free gift received by simple faith, the free gift of grace which is undeserved favor. So we all share in the same grace. And God's grace is sufficient. Uh, that undeserved merit is most uh, powerfully manifest in our eternal salvation, but it's also manifest day by day as God gives us undeserved ability. You know, when a believer suffers tragedies, you know, a lot of times those of us that aren't walking through that storm from the outside looking in think, wow, I don't know how they're handling that. I could never handle that. Or, you know, the loss of a loved one or something like that. I could never handle Well, the thing is, until you go through it, you don't need the grace that God gives you for that particular situation. But as we can all testify, as we go through the journey of life, there are times when God pours out His grace upon us to give us not just undeserved favor, but undeserved ability, things that we could not do on our own. Some of you may know the story of John Bradford. He was an early 16th century English reformer. 
and a martyr for the faith. He was arrested for stirring up a mob, that was the charge against him, uh, against the Catholic Church. And on January 31st, 1555, Bradford was tried and condemned to death. He was taken to Newgate Prison to be burned at the stake on scheduled for July 1st. Well, a large crowd delayed the execution, which had been scheduled for 4 o'clock in the morning, because Bradford had many admirers and followers, and they, they came to, to witness his death. Well, he was chained to a stake at Smithfield, a, a district in, in central London, with another young man named John Leaf. And before the, the fire was lit, he begged forgiveness of anyone he had wronged and offered forgiveness to those who had wronged him. And then he turned to Leaf and he said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this very night. Well, the tradition of this phrase, there but by the grace of God go I, being attributed to Bradford, uh, goes back uh, to about 1822 when uh, Edward Bickersteth in his book, A Treatise on Prayer, said the pious martyr Bradford, when he saw a poor criminal being led to execution, exclaimed, there but for the grace of God go I. He knew that the same evil principles were in his own heart that had brought that criminal to his shameful end. Such was the life of John Bradford. There but by the grace of God go I. If we would keep that principle in mind, I think it would do a lot to squelch the pride that rears its ugly head in all of us at times as we tend to judge and evaluate others. Now the scripture certainly tells us to judge others in the sense of distinguishing right from wrong and and, and calling out sin and those types of things. But the minute we make it personal and say, I'm so much better than that person, or there's no way that person can be a Christian because look what they've done, we need to remember there, but by the grace of God, go I. And Paul, from one of those prison epistles again, would write, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're all recipients of the same grace. Our salvation is a gift of grace. Titus, In Titus, Paul said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Everyone's in the same boat. We're all in this together. And because we've all received grace, we should all give grace. What do we have in common? We should all be gracious people, characterized by grace, appreciative of grace, freely bestowing grace on other people. Jesus said in Matthew 10, freely you have received, freely give. Years ago, I preached a message at a conference called Defending Grace Graciously because I have found through the years, and I've been guilty of it myself, that sometimes those of us that are passionate about the pure free grace message of salvation can be pretty ungracious in defending it. And we need to be gracious. So what do we have in common? The same gospel, the same guarantee, the same grace. And guess what? We have the same God. There's no other besides God. All religions of the world then and now that worship another God are false religions. They don't work. And Paul appeals uh, to this. Uh, Simon, talking about uh, Peter here, actually this is James, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. 
at the first there is referring again back to that day of Pentecost. Remember the church is 17 years old. To take out a people uh, from them for his name is talking about our name as Christians. Remember in Acts 11 at Antioch, the, Christ, the disciples were first called Christians, which means Christ-like. That's a unique blessing of this present church age. And God called us out to, have, to wear that name, to wear that label. You know, that's unique. The Jews, as I've often pointed out, we're not called Yahwehites, but we're called Christians. In other words, we all share a namesake. And James is the one speaking this time at the council, and he appeals to the prophet Amos to make his point. And by the way, this is a key passage in uh, verses 15 to 18 of this Jerusalem Council section that affirms that Christ will return after the church age. It's, all, if, it's often you know, overlooked as we argue about eschatology. But he, he goes on to say, And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. What does he say the prophets of old agree about? That the purpose of the church is to take out a people for his name. And he says... Then after this, after I've taken out a people for my name, after the church age, in other words, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And he's quoting here from Amos chapter 9, the Old Testament a prophet. So we share the same God, and this same God is going to send his son, Jesus Christ, a second time to the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. This time he'll be crowned with a crown of victory instead of a crown of thorns. We're not living in the kingdom today. We're, we're living in the church age. But the kingdom is yet to come. God has a plan. James sums it all up with these uh, words here. Known to God from eternity are all his works. You see, it's all about God. God has a plan. And one of the things we all have in common is we serve that same God. God is not a God of disunity. He's in charge. He's working out his plan. That plan involves Israel, that plan involves the church, that plan involves every other created thing. We've talked a lot about this in our study through the end times. Uh, but the church is not Israel, Israel is not the church. God is working out His plan. So we have the same gospel, the same guarantee, the same grace. We all serve the same God. And that brings me to the final point from Acts 15, and that is we have the same goal. We have the same Goal. Look at verse 25. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord. One accord. This is a section of Acts 15 that uh, comprises the letter that the, the members of the Jerusalem Council after meeting decided to send back to all the churches. It's often called the, the Jerusalem Decision or the Jerusalem Decree. In other words, what do we do about these Jews and Gentiles and and how, you know, what, what, what is the real method of salvation? And what they concluded that it's by grace through faith alone. Certainly they should encourage new believers to, you know, to be gracious and to be sensitive and to certain, you know, behave themselves in certain areas. But none of that matters when it comes to uh, salvation. And so our goal should be to be of one accord. In uh, Greek, this word is homothumadon. It's, it's used 12 times and has the idea of with one mind, purpose, or impulse. Impulse. Think about that word for just a moment. The idea is that we should be so like-minded as brothers and sisters in Christ that we move together on impulse. We don't have to try to be united. We just respond appropriately. You know, kind of like 
people watching a movie on the big screen. And when the monster jumps out of the closet, everybody in the auditorium goes, <gasps> right? Because they're all in tune watching the same thing. Of course, they're also probably being mind controlled by Hollywood based on you know, big screen movies. That's another story. Maybe that's not the best illustration. But you see my point. Moving together on impulse. That's what the church is all about. And here we are 17 years into the church. And, you know, the church leaders are saying it seemed good to us when we were together in one accord that this should be how we move forward. And if you go back 17 years earlier, guess what we see? That same word, homothumadon, on the day of Pentecost. They were all in one accord, in one place. The only time this word, remember it's used, what I say, 12 times, is used outside of the book of Acts, is where uh, Paul uses it in Romans chapter 15. And he says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, that you may be with one mind. That's the word homothumadon, one accord. So every instance but one that this word is used is in Acts. What does that tell us about the local church? We've got to, we've got to move together on impulse, following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So what do we have in common? Well, we have the, the same gospel, the same good news that we should all rejoice about. We have the same guarantee that someday we'll be in heaven together. We never need doubt. We never need wonder. We never have to wake up every day and say, I wonder if I'm really saved. You know, we just trust the promise of Christ. We have the same grace that saved us and sustains us day by day. We have the same God who's working out His plan of the ages precisely as He intended it would. And we have the same goal, which is to work together until Christ comes to spread the gospel and make disciples. So what's the takeaway? Very simple. We're all in this together. And that's going to become even more important if the Lord tarries is coming as we see more and more freedoms taken away, persecution begin to roll out, and the body of Christ needs to be prepared to circle the wagons and remember we're all in this together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for just this historical portion of Scripture that gives us insights into how the church did function and should function. And Lord, I pray that Today you would strengthen uh, the members of Plum Creek Chapel and, and our brothers and sisters in other churches across the globe, really, uh, to move in impulse and to follow your word and, and your will and to make a difference in this world as long as you have us here. And Lord, as we've talked a lot about the gospel today and grace, I just pray that if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Savior, that today in simple childlike faith they would trust in Him and Him alone as the only one who can save them. And we pray this in His precious name. Amen.